want to look creative and look cool at the same time, feeling smart and creative, and you want to be unique all around the world, then check out one of the hottest t-shirts in the world. That's right. Dash t-shirts consigneur one of the best t-shirts that you'll ever see in all kinds of designs that's right go check out my boy christopher dash as he has dash t-shirts consigneur that's right check out dash t-shirts consigneur dot my shopify.com check it out Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Hey, I've decided to go ahead and do an episode about James Baldwin. Yes, um, I love James Baldwin. I don't know a whole lot about him, but some of the things I've heard and read, it was just blows my mind. Um, I wanted to talk about the famous writer, James Baldwin, born in New York City, August 2nd, 1924. He was a novelist, a playwright, and he talks about passionately the subject of race in America. And he is the important voice during the 1950s, 60s, and into the 70s. Yes. Um, he is the eldest of nine children, grew up in Harlem in New York City. Um, they, they were very poor. Um, they didn't have a whole lot. His family didn't. Um, but when he was in middle school, he was very active um, during out-of-school hours as a preacher in a small church. And this is a period where he wrote about his semi-autobiography, first and finest novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, in 1953. I believe he was 19 years old at the time. Or was it? No, I'm sorry. Forgive me. He was 29 at the time. And it's play about a woman evangelicus. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Let me let me start over. Okay. Then he did a play about a woman, Evangelis, the Amen Corner, performed in New York City, 1965, when he was about 31 years of age. Before he became a writer, he had, you know, Jobs that didn't pay much. All right. He was a self-learner. And he... Um, he was self-taught. All right. He did apprenticeship in Greenwick Village. The Bohemian Quarter of New York City. Now, he did go to Paris in 1948. Where he lived for the next eight years. In later years from 1969 until 
his death in 1987. All right. But um, he returned in America in 1957, and he was a voice for the civil rights movement, a movement which involved uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, then later on, um, Malcolm X. But Malcolm X was a leader of the Nation of Islam. He was a powerful speaker. A lot of people love his intellect on um, the black struggle in America. Um, he was a, uh, he was pro Second Amendment, Malcolm X was, and that's why um, at the end, James Baldwin and Malcolm X, they respected each other. Now, um, he continued to write until his death, publishing works like Going to Meet the Man, collection of short stories, the novels. Tell me how long the train has been gone, 1968. But the most famous, If Beale Street Could Talk in 1974. That was his famous one in The Price of a Ticket, 1985. Um, wow. But I want, I'm going to get into If Beale Street could talk. That is probably one of his most famous writings. All right. All right. Something that is so, so powerful. Um, hold on, everybody. Hold on. I'm going to read here in this uh, Goodreads article. This honest and stunning novel, James Baldwin has given America a moving story of love in the face of injustice, told through in the eyes of Tish, a 19-year-old girl who is in love with Fonny, a young sculptor who is the father of her child. Baldwin's story mixes the sweet and the sad. Tish and Fonny have pledged to get married, but Fawny is falsely accused of a terrible crime and imprisoned. Their family set out to clear his name, and as they face an uncertain future, the young lovers experience a callous, was it, kaleidoscope of emotions, affection, despair, and hope, and a love story that evokes the blues where passion and sadness or Inevitably intertwined, Baldwin has created two characters so alive and profoundly realized that they are unforgettably ingrained in the American psyche. This was in January 1974. Um, the movie, the film, which was... Um, I believe it won an Academy Award. Yes. Um, yeah. It, it, <clears throat> excuse me.
Now this, uh, if Bill Street could talk, the movie won an Academy Award um, for Best Actress in a Supporting Role. Regina King, who is one of my favorite actresses. Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress, Regina King. Academy Award for Best Music, Nicholas Britell. Academy Award for Best Writing, Barry Jenkins. Is a Golden Globe Award for Best Motion Picture. Um, Critics' Choice Movie Award for Best Supporting Actress, Regina King. Regina King is, in my opinion, the greatest actress of all time. Yes. So, um, there was some kind of similarities and differences in the movie. But I would tell people, yes, I love the movie. It's a beautiful movie, but please, I would prefer you guys to read the book. If Beale Street could talk. It's so good that I want to purchase it myself. Okay. If Beale Street could talk, please get the book by James Baldwin. Actually, one of the um, all-time great books. So, I'm going to give you guys a little treat here. That's right. I'm going to give y'all a treat. And it's something that I want everybody to look at or listen to. That's right. Because there was the debate between James Baldwin and Malcolm X that I want you guys to listen to. All right, I've never listened to it before, believe it or not, as a historian. Well, but also, too, I Am Not Your Negro. He talks about, the, you know, the experience in um, America and the racial um, perception of black America during um, the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, something to listen to, uh, something to read. Um, it is very powerful. But, um, let's, um, we're going to listen to it. Uh, not for myself, but as a follower and helper and representative of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, who is the spiritual head of the fastest growing group religious group of black people here in the western hemisphere when we give our views we don't give them as a civic group we don't give them as a political group but we give them primarily as a religious group and any solution that we support we absolutely uh, feel that it's a religious solution rather than a political solution one of the one of the reasons that the honorable elijah muhammad uh, in teaching us here in America uh, is giving us a solution that differs drastically from the sit-in movement. He's trying to make us men. Now, the, the very fact that you find students all over the world today are standing up for their rights and fighting for their rights. 
But here in America, the so-called Negro students have allowed themselves to be maneuvered under a tag uh, of sit-in. Actually, I guess it describes, it. the, the name describes its nature. It's a passive thing. And uh, if their goal is uh, integration, it's not a worthwhile one. But if their goal is freedom, justice, and equality, then that's a worthwhile goal. If integration is going to give the black people in America complete freedom, complete justice, and complete equality, then it's a worthwhile goal. The holding this integration uh, uh, bottle, dangling it in front of the Negroes in America today, has actually uh, disabled them, or it has uh, nullified their ability to stand up and fight like a man for something that is theirs by right, rather than to just sit around and beg and wait for the white man to make up his mind that they're worthy to have this type thing. I think that this is, in my opinion, why we disagree with the uh, sit-in movement. If uh, they are willing to wait for another hundred years for the white man to change his mind, to accept them as a human being, then they're wrong. Uh, but if they're willing to lay down their life tonight or in the morning in order that we can have what is ours by right tonight or in the morning, then it's a good movement. But as long as they're willing to wait for the white man to make up his mind that they are qualified to be respected as human beings, then I'm afraid that all of their uh, waiting and their planning is for naught. Uh, as, as Thurgood Marshall said on New Year's Eve, uh, the, the Supreme Court brought about the desegregation decision, I think, uh, six or seven years ago, and there is only 6% desegregation in America right now. We don't call uh, two students, black students, going to the University of Georgia integration, nor do we cause, call uh, four children, black children, going to school in New Orleans integration, nor do we call a handful of black students going to school in Little Rock integration. If every black man in the state of Arkansas can't go to any school he wants, that's not integration. And if every black child in the state of Louisiana cannot go to any school that they are qualified for in the morning, then that's not integration. And likewise with Georgia and any other state in America. It's no integration with us until the entire thing is given, is laid on the table, not a hundred years from now, but in the morning. And at the rate that the NAACP, CORE, and uh, uh, the Urban League, is uh, willing to accept the, the change of attitude in the white man's mind, we who are Muslims feel we'll be sitting around here in America for another thousand years, uh, not waiting for civil rights or something like that, but even waiting to be uh, granted the rights of a human being. I have a feeling that um, a great many words have been floating around, have been floating around this table which need to be um, redefined. And that, by the way, is the problem I think which faces, facing this entire country. Now, I don't agree with Mr. X about the sit-in movement, and I do know something about the war, the incipient war between the students and some of the leaders. I know, I know the gap, the enormous gap between the NAACP and the children in the South. I don't agree that the sit-in, you know, I don't agree that it is necessarily passive. I think it demands a tremendous amount of power in one's, in one's personal life and, and, and in terms of political polemical activity. Sometimes to, to, to sit down and do nothing or seem to do nothing. But finally, when the, when the sit-in movement started, or when a great many things started in the, in, the, in the Western world, it was not, I don't think, I think it had a great deal less to do with equality than it had to do with power. And I do think we have to talk about, we have to decide what we want, you know. Now, what has happened in the world in relation to black people 
and not the white people who suddenly change and become more uh, more conscious of, of a black man's humanity. This, what has happened is very simple. This is the white power has been broken. And, and this means, among other things, that it is no longer possible for an Englishman to describe an African and make the African believe it. It is no longer possible for a white man in this country to tell a Negro who he is and make the Negro believe this. The controlling image is absolutely gone. Now, it seems to me the responsibility which faces us then, the question which faces us, which faces me in any case, is since there is a distinction between power and equality, there is a distinction between power and freedom. And I know that in terms, for example, of, of Africa, that an African nation cannot expect to be respected unless it is free. I know that it, unless, it is, unless it has its political destiny in its own hands, which is what we mean by power, there is no hope that the English will deal with an African nation on... They will deal with an African nation as a, sub, as a subjugated nation as long as it is in fact subjugated. That is not quite the same situation that we face here in America as American Negroes. I can see that I might very well, for one reason or another, leave this country tomorrow and never come back. But this will not make me, this will not cease, I will not cease to be an American Negro for this reason. And the history of our, our history in this country is something that I think we have to face, especially since we demanding that white people face it. And whether I like it or not, whether, whether you like it or not, this issue about integration is a, is a false issue because we have been integrated here ever since we got here. I am no longer a pure African. There are no pure Africans in this country. The history which has produced us is something which in any case we're going to have to deal with one of these days. But I think it is a mistake to pretend this issue did not happen. What we're arguing about, I think, one of the things in any case I think I would be arguing about is the effect of this on the Negro world and the great divisions in it, so that, so that it does in fact range from people who imagine they are white, you know, who never talk to Negroes, to people who imagine that if they can make a buck, they will somehow beat the system, to homeless and, and demoralized black boys and girls who have nowhere to, who don't know where to go. The issue, it seems to me, the reason the civil movement is important, the reason this whole ferment is of such importance, is not that I want anybody's cup of coffee, or even to go, particularly to anybody's school. It is because the country cannot afford, the country cannot afford to have, as it has at this moment, millions of black boys and girls in various ghettos all over the country, either perishing literally, or perishing, I must say, finally with bitter, the kind of demoral, demoralization and bitterness and hatred, which can, after all, blow this country wide apart. The importance, in my mind, of the Muslim movement, in conclusion, is that it is the first time, I think, in the history of this country that uh, a Negro audience, a, a, a Negro laborer, a Negro, a Negro schoolboy has heard his own condition described and, without anybody trying to flinch from it. It is really been hearing a speech by Roy Wilkins in which, you know, um, one is told in one way or another that tomorrow will be better. Uh, and I think this has a tremendous effect this is the reason Muslim, I think the Muslim speaker has so much power over his audience. It comes out of a failure in the Republic. This country has lied about the Negro situation for 100 years. And now what has happened is the lies are no longer viable, can no longer be, can, can no longer be accepted even when they make it told. And the country has waited so long and it does not know how to handle this. And it's created a moral vacuum. There's a moral vacuum in the, in the Negro ghettos and the same way there's a moral vacuum in New Orleans which is filled with desperate people. Now, I don't think that we can afford this. It seems to me, and now I speak for myself, my call with the official Negro leadership, and my call with uh, 
those such Negroes imagine they are um, integrated or imagine they somehow escaped Negro condition is they are not willing to do what I think is absolutely essential when it's got to re-examine the basis, the standards of this country, which not only afflict black people, they afflict the entire country. No one in this country, as far as I can see, really knows any longer what it means to be to be an American. He, he does not know what he means by freedom. He does not know what he means by equality. We live in the most abysmal ignorance of not only the condition of 20 million Negroes in our midst, but the, the whole nature of the life being lived in the rest of the world. And I think that the American, the American right now, the Republic, is paying and beginning to pay for his treatment of the Negro in terms of what he does not know about the rest of the world. You cannot live, it seems to me, in a, you cannot live 30 years, let's say, with something in your closet which you know is there and pretend it is not there without something terrible happening to you. By and by, what you can, what I cannot say is I know that any one of you, you know, has um, murdered your brother, your mother, and the corpse is in this room under the table, and I know it, and you know it, and you know I know it. And we cannot talk about it. It takes no time at all before we cannot talk about anything, before absolute silence descends. And that kind of silence is descending on this country. I think that this country has become a, almost inconceivably radical. It has really got to do something that's not done before. This involves the humanity of everybody in it. And the key to this is in the Negro. If one can face that, one can face anything. But that has not been faced. And I think this is the reason for the confusion and the ferment and the great, great danger. Again, let me say this, and I will stop. I'm not religious. Um, and therefore, since I'm not religious, all theologies, uh, for me, are suspect. All theologies have a certain use. But um, I never, for example, believe in the myth of the virgin birth. I never quite understood why it was necessary to propagate such a peculiar notion. Therefore, you know, as theologies go, the Muslim theology is just as good as any. We're going to quarrel with it there. I can't, anyway. But I personally, I personally reject that theology and I reject all others. And I don't think that we need it. And this is a great, this is a gamble. This is a very reckless thing to say. And perhaps, you know, I'm, perhaps it's very mystical. I know the kind of world I would like to see. I would like to think of myself without needing to be, um, um, supported by a myth. I would like to think of myself as being able to face whatever it is I have to face as me, dealing with what I have and what, and what there is, without having my identity dependent on something which finally has to be believed, which cannot be tested. This is why one is converted to a religion, you know. I think that it, there's nothing very dangerous in it. What I would like to see and maybe we'll never live to see it, is a world in which these things are not necessary, which I will not need to invent, in effect, a heritage and a history that can deal with the one I have, and will not need, in order to, in order to deal with the rest of the world, not need to feel superior to them, but simply, simply be a part of them. And it seems to me this may happen. Well, I'll never see a world in which there are no blacks, there are no whites, where it does not matter. Because as long as it does matter, as long as it does matter, and it doesn't matter who is wearing a shoe, the confusion will be great and the bloodshed will be great. Well, I, uh, as a black man, and proud of being a black man, I, I can't conceive of myself 
as having any desire whatsoever to lose my identity. I wouldn't want to live in a world uh, where none of my kind existed. I, and I do think that the Negro, Americans, American so-called Negro, is the only person on earth who would be willing to lose his identity in a, what you might call a, a new product. Uh, this, I heard one fellow say one day that that their eventual intermarriage and intermixing would take place on such a vast scale that it would produce a chocolate-colored race. And, uh, and Martin Luther King was in a uh, discussion, televised discussion, with a white uh, newspaper man. I saw it on the television a couple months ago. And this white newspaper man put this to him. Uh, he said, he pointed out, that he's proud of his white race, he's proud of what he is, he's proud of the, his racial characteristics uh, to the extent where he has no desire to lose it by mixing with any other race. And the thing that he said he couldn't understand was why the so-called Negroes don't have the same uh, racial pride that whites have in trying to retain their characteristics. And Martin Luther King never answered him, although he should have answered him. Uh, I think that it is uh, that it's disastrous for the black people in America to reach the point where they, their race pride, racial pride uh, disappears and they don't, want, they don't care whether their blood is mixed up with someone else's. I think that also one of the things that brings this about, as the Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us, the very fact that you have to refer to the black man in America as a Negro shows you that right there something is wrong and African doesn't accept this term Negro and uh, you find they teach us in the educational system of this country that Negro is a Spanish word that's supposed to mean black uh, yet when you find the uh, black people who live in Spanish-speaking countries of South and Central America they don't accept the word Negro to identify themselves uh, no one allows himself to be classified <coughs> under the word Negro but the black man here in America who is a descendant of the slaves. And very seldom is it ever applied to anybody but the black man in here, here in America, who is the descendant of the slaves. When you ask a man his identity, he should use a, a word that connects him with a, with a culture. If you ask him his nationality, it should connect him with, with a nation. Like if I ask a man his nationality and he says German, that connects him with Germany. Or if he says, uh, even if he says German-American, it still connects him with uh, having originated his family, his history, uh, has originated in Germany. If he says he's French-American, it connects him uh, with France. But when you ask the black man in America, and he tells you Negro, he doesn't put any other, he doesn't, he doesn't put any, any other country up front. In, in, uh, in front, he puts American Negro, or he'll just say Negro. This doesn't identify him. And usually when you find a man who calls himself a Negro, he can't tell you what language that he spoke before he came to this country. It's of no consequence, no interest. He believes that prior to coming here, he was a savage in the jungle, and therefore he had no language. And this justifies his uh, lack of knowledge concerning that mother tongue today. And the history, as uh, Mr. Baldwin pointed out, of the white man here in America and the black man here in America, points up the fact that the Negro, or the man here who calls himself a Negro, is just an ex-slave. If he is an ex-slave, I'd rather say he's still a slave. But he's wearing his slave master's name, the name that was given to him during slavery. He's speaking the language of the man who made him a slave because he has no knowledge of his own tongue. He only knows the history, his own history, as taught to him by his former slave master, 
who purposely hid from him his, uh, his own history to make him think that he was an inferior being before being brought here. And uh, Mr. Muhammad teaches us that until the black man here in America is uh, connected or reestablished uh, or given, an, given some knowledge of his existence prior to coming here to America, his own uh, appraisal of himself will be so low that he'll actually think that the white man is doing him a favor to let him be here in America no matter what his status is. And he, he also, and this is one of the reasons today why he fights so hard, some of them, to sit down next to the white man. They actually think that the white man is the personification of perfection. And whenever they're allowed to go live in his neighborhood or sit in his restaurant or uh, uh, mingle or socialize with him, that they have attained, that they have made progress. But uh, when they go back and study the history of their own people and the accomplishments of their own people, the civilizations and cultures, black civilizations and black cultures that existed in Africa at a time when the whites in Europe were living a cave-like uh, 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 existence, then immediately their appraisal of, their self, of themselves uh, begins to uh, go higher. And they don't think that to beg uh, 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 somebody to mingle with them in this country is any kind of progress whatsoever. And I would like to say one more thing, too, on that nonviolent thing, that the black man in America is the only one who is encouraged to be nonviolent, or the black man in Africa, or the black man in Asia. Uh, never do you find white people encouraging other whites to be nonviolent. Uh, whites uh, idolize fighters. They idolize the Hungarian freedom fighters who came to this country and uh, right now can work on jobs that the sit-in students can't get, can live in neighborhoods that the sit-in students can't live in, and can go into play public places that the students sit in can't go because they are fighters. Everyone loves a fighter. They respect the fighter. And, but at the same time that they admire these fighters, they encourage the so-called Negro in America to get his uh, uh, desires fulfilled with a sit-in stroke or a passive approach or a love-your-enemy uh, approach or pray for those who despitefully use you. This is insane. And we feel as Muslims, until we see white people practicing this nonviolence, take Pearl Harbor, when the Japanese pa uh, attacked Pearl Harbor, the American white man didn't say, pray for the Japanese and uh, let them now bomb Manhattan or uh, Staten Island. No, they said, praise the Lord, but pass the ammunition. But, uh, and if anybody comes along, like Mr. Muhammad, and begins to point out uncompromisingly in blunt terms that don't need diplomatic language that can be misinterpreted, and he begins to point out these atrocities and crimes that have been committed against black people here in America today. The white man can never deny the fact that he's guilty, but he'll always say, well, forget the past and let's look forward. But uh, uh, the only people who are told to forget the injustices that have been done to them are the black people. But when it comes to whites, right today, you can turn on any radio, turn on any television, read any newspaper, and the uh, Jews have magnified to the world the crimes that were committed against them 20 years ago or so by Eichmann, uh, and they keep you sitting on the edge of your seat wanting to strangle Eichmann, or it's almost like a hate Germany uh, campaign, 
But yet the Jews are never accused of teaching hate because they remind, of the world, remind the world of the crimes that were committed against them. But when the black man here in America begins to stand up and speak about the crimes that are committed against him throughout America every day, no letter, just different forms, immediately a black man who dwells on that is considered a racist, considered an extremist, or considered someone who is advocating a doctrine that will bring about violence and bring about a deterioration in the so-called good relations that are supposed to be developing between black and white in this country. So we just can't go along with any of that. And I think that this is the thing that the white people of America should realize, that Mr. Muhammad's teaching, and it's spreading, so you have to deal with it, Mr. Muhammad's teaching doesn't teach the black man to wait for the white man to change his mind. Mr. Muhammad's teaching is changing the, the black man's appraisal of himself. And as soon as the black man uh, undergoes a reappraisal of himself and realizes that he's a man too, he says to himself, why should he wait for the Supreme Court to give him what a white man has when he's born, why should he wait for the Congress or the Senate or the President to tell him that he should have this when if he's a man the same as that man is a man, he doesn't need any President, he doesn't need any Congress, he doesn't need any Supreme Court, he doesn't need anybody but himself to bring about that which is his if he is a man. I agree. I... If you want to watch the full content, go to uh, YouTube, which is uploaded by J.D. Productions LLC. I want to give the, um, you know, the person who um, uploaded the video credit where credit is due. That's my belief. If you're going to, to reference their article or product, give the give the originator the credit. So thank you, JD Productions LLC. And I was reading the Paris Review years ago um well it was made years ago and this was this was beautiful and the interviewer in the paris review would say would you tell us how you came to leave the states he said i was broke james Baldwin said i was broke i got to paris with 40 dollars in my pocket but i had to get out of new york my reflexes were tormented by the plight of other people Reading had taken me away for long periods at a time, yet I still had to deal with the streets and the authorities and the cold. I knew what it meant to be white, and I knew what it meant to be a nigger. I knew what was going to happen to me. My luck was running out. I was going to go to jail. I was going to kill somebody or be killed. My best friend had committed suicide two years earlier, jumping off the George Washington Bridge. When I arrived in Paris in 1948, I didn't know a word of French. I didn't know anyone. I didn't want to know anyone. Wow, this was, this is powerful. Um, and then he mentioned that he would, you know, ask or beg for money. Um, you know, when he was trying to go from hotel to hotel, um, but he wasn't kicked out. Because there was a couple, a nice um, couple, um, the Korsh, uh, was it a Korshikin family that helped, took care of him when he was sick. Um, he could never understand it, but he was so grateful for that family. Um, she would use, the old lady would use old folk remedies to get him, um, 
to help them get well and to stay alive. Um, so the interviewer would say, why you choose France? And he said, it's something very interesting. It wasn't so much a matter of choosing France. It was a matter of getting out of America. I didn't know what was going to happen to me in France, but I knew what was going to happen to me in New York. So basically, as a black American from New York, he was afraid that if things continue to go the way it is going, he could be lynched, he could be killed, he could kill somebody. He just doesn't see a positive outcome for him. It happens to the best of us so many times. I mean, especially today. But the interviewer who said, you said the city beat him to death. You mean metaphorically? No, not. And Baldwin said, no, not so metaphorically. Looking for a place to live, looking for a job. You begin to doubt your judgment. You begin to doubt everything. You become imprecise. And that's when you're beginning to go under. You've been beaten and it's been liberate. The whole society has decided to make you nothing and they don't even know they're doing it. So if you want to see the rest of this article, go to the Paris Review online on the parisreview.org. Yes, um, it was interviewed by Jordan L. Rebley the spring of 1984. So please check out the Paris Review online at theparisreview.org. Great interview. Uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Now, there has been rumors and speculation that Billy Porter is going to do a um, portrayal of James Baldwin because of Baldwin's sexuality. Um, I don't know much about Baldwin's sexuality, but even with his sexuality, he chose his people, he chose being black first. And that's when, and that's where a lot of people in the LGBTQ, including Billy Porter, has forgotten about. They chose Billy Porter about it. Um, this is not to disrespect Billy Porter, but I don't think it's necessary to do a documentary, especially choosing um, Billy Porter, because I say this because he never really or rarely spoke about his sexuality. In fact, he spoke about his work. He spoke about his life experience in New York City, his life experience in America. That's what we really should be focusing more about instead of his sexuality. That's one thing I've learned about James Baldwin. Okay. I mean, I would, if I were everybody, I would go ahead, buy or read his essays, his book, his articles. James Baldwin is a once in a lifetime great writer and great thinker. And that debate that he had with Malcolm X is very powerful. It's something that you want to listen to. Man, it is worth the price of admission. 
but it's on YouTube. So please check it out. Um, JD Productions LLC, he has uploaded it on YouTube, so I have to give him credit. Much love to JD Productions LLC. Much love. And that will do it. So remember, always make the impossible possible. Success comes from you. Which road are you going to take? So until next time, I'm out. Be safe. Much love. Looking for a future A-list star? Looking for a future Emmy or Grammy Award winning superstar? Look no further than the hottest black and white indie films in the world on Tubi app channel. We got all the great movies and all the great performers and actors and actresses like Natia Nicole, Socorro Jones, Jasmine Alicia, Kelsey Delamar, and film production like 856 Films, Dennis Reproductions, yes, and so much more. Check out the Tubi app channel for the hottest films are on full display. It's fantastic. Let's get it.
nation. And I have proof to say what I was doing. I did more for the East Coast than the East Coast did. I put more guns in East Coast niggas' hands than East Coast niggas did when they came out here. I put the niggas on the more weed gates and weed spots and safe havens and safe spots than the East Coast did. I put more rappers on than they did. I gave Biggie his first shows. I was the one that put, I was that bridge that niggas used to walk on to get over here. I explained it. I'm the one that told you. I'm why all these niggas run around with a gangbanger on their payroll now. It was never a beef. It's only a difference in opinion. Right, to me, if I, like, my, my homeboy Shug gave me the best advice I could ever give from anybody. He said, he's, when people ask him if he's beefing with um, Bad Boy, with Puffy, he says, like, me going to a playground and picking on a little kid. Right. That's like me being mad at my little brother because he getting cash now. I'm not mad at that. I'm just mad at my little brother when he don't respect me. Now, when you don't respect me, I'm going to spank your ass. I don't give a fuck how rich you got. On the block, I'm your big brother. I will break your big ass down. And that's my that's only that's my only point. And I feel as though you wronged me. You got out of hand and you wronged me. You got seduced by the power. Not because he's an evil person, yeah. but because money is evil if it's not handled right. If you lose your composure, you can do anything. And he, he fear got stronger than love. And niggas did things that they know they weren't supposed to do. They know in their heart. That's why they in hell now. Right. They can't sleep. That's why they're telling all of the reporters and all the people, why they doing this? They fucking up their popper. Because they in hell. They can't make money. They can't go anywhere. They can't look at themselves. Because they know the prodigal son has returned. I'm alive. The ghost is walking around. You know what I mean? And I'm alive talking. In jail, I didn't talk. I made peace. Now, everybody thinks that I disrespect. All right, that was um, in the beginning. You heard the um, Black Expo in Indiana, you know, from Tupac Shakur. Uh, besides being a hip hop artist, he was an activist for the community. He did a, um, I think months before he was murdered, he did a um, vibe interview. Um, that you just listened to, um, okay, the documentaries that you see about Tupac or the bioptics about Biggie and Tupac, scrap it, scrap it. People are just dancing around in circles. They're dancing around in circles. So black, they look purple kind of way, you know what I'm saying? If you really, really want to hear the real story, the real truth, listen to the Vibe interview. All right. Don't, don't really listen to these um, so-called fraudulent documentaries that they have in people or celebrities that get into these documentaries um, telling what, oh, they think they know Tupac. Oh, I know my boy Tupac. I've been with him every day. I know this and that. Da, 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 da. The real credible sources, honestly, is when you listen to people like the Outlaws. Even Suge Knight is credible. I'm not the biggest 
Suge Knight fan. But I do think some of the, the things that he say is credible. Everybody outside, I can't say the same. But if you really want to hear the real scoop, listen to the Vibe interview. You get Tupac's own thoughts, his own opinion, his own view on what really happened. You know, Tupac answered your question. Okay, he answered people's questions, but I'm, I was more intrigued about the Black Expo in Indiana. Uh, when he mentioned about Natasha. All right. I want to, you know, give you that backstory. All right. This is what Tupac Shakur was talking about. All right. Tupac was talking about the killing of Latasha Harlins, which was over 30 years ago. You read this. This is in the Los Angeles Times. 30 years ago, the 15-year-old black girl from South Central walked into an Empire Liquor Market in Delhi, grabbed a dollar and seventy-nine um, bottle of orange juice and put it in her backpack. A Korean-born merchant, Soon Jadu, accused her of stealing it. Latasha had two dollars in her hand. Du grabbed Latasha's sweater. Then Latasha punched Du in the face and headed for the door. Do pick up a handgun and fired a shot into the back of Latasha's head. Police later confirmed that there was no attempt at shoplifting. A jury found Do guilty of voluntary manslaughter, but instead of serving a maximum 16 years in prison, Judge Joyce A. Carlin gave Do probation for killing a 15-year-old girl who was walking away from her. Now, that story that Tupac mentioned, where he said, I walk around with Natasha in my heart or in my head every day. I have Rodney in my head every day. Talking about Rodney King, the Rodney King riots. But when I... When I saw that the judge only gave a terrorist, yes, a terrorist and a murderer probation, yes, the uh, store owner, um, Soon Jadu, is a terrorist and only gotten probation. And it rocked Los Angeles badly. 
and Rodney King got the hell beat out of him. The cops were exonerated, causing the L.A. riots. Wow. And we remember um, Tupac Shakur, when he first started, you know, rapping, doing all kinds of, uh, you know, acting when he was starring at Juice. He was in a group called Digital Underground. And, um, and I don't think anybody remember, but Tupac Shakur was brutally beaten badly by the NYPD. Brutally beaten. And it has psychologically scarred him for a minute. So, Tupac carried a lot of disdain for so many. He carried disdain for law enforcement, the NYPD, carried the disdain the LAPD. Trust and believe me, we have a lot of cops out here. And I'm an independent conservative. And I can tell you, you have a lot of cops who have a lot of racist vibes. They have this terroristic mentality that once they put the badge on, they could do whatever the hell they want to. That is like a gangster party in blue. Trust and believe me, I was falsely handcuffed by the police, by the Newport News police. I got mistreated by a bunch of punks in uh, the Hampton Police Department when I was in a car accident. Police, uh, I'm realizing that there's a lot of police that are not out here to protect you. They're brought and paid for by the judges. They've been brought and paid for by politicians. They've been bought and paid for by a lot of donors. Let's keep it 100%. It's not just the NYPD, LAPD. Hampton City Police, Newport New City Police, but it's all over. That's right. Tupac inspired us to fight. Tupac inspired us to love our culture. Tupac inspired us to fight against something that is bullshit. If there's something that's bullshit, You'll fight as hell to correct it. I love Tupac. I believe Tupac is one of the greatest musicians ever. But he was developing into a great actor. I feel as though if he was still alive, I had a feeling that he would retire from hip-hop and focus more on acting and I believe he would have Tupac would have won multiple Academy Awards I strongly believe 
that was hearing that Tupac was going to retire. Biggie was going to do the same thing. Biggie was going to was going to leave Bad Boy. But if Tupac was alive, I strongly believe that he would eventually retire from hip hop. Win a few Academy Awards in acting and just go off in the sunset and become a full-time activist to change the world with this mentality. He would be in that position that Colin Kaepernick is, but better. There would be no Black Lives Matter movement or organization. It would be like the Black Lives Unite once and for all. But what a great documentary. What a great video or audio to listen. Um, I do not own the copyrights to the audio of Tupac Shakur. I just wanted to mention that. But this has been a great show, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. And um, so I've decided to add Tupac in this inspirational We Are Inspirational Kings series because he is an inspiration to all of us. So I want to say make the impossible possible. Use your mind. It's best to use your mind and not your heart. When you use your mind, you can strategize and you can have a better vision of your life. Your heart is pure, but your heart, as I say, love is blind. It will take over your mind. Until next time, y'all be blessed, y'all stay safe, and I'm out. You want a smooth and healthier skin with all kinds of flavors? Do you want to feel good like a billion dollars? Then come check out one of the hottest skincare products in the world. That's right, the billion dollar industry presents Hypnotic Skincare. One of the hottest selling skincares in the world. So check out all kinds of flavors, all kinds of men's and women's scrubs from head to toe. That's right. Check out Hypnotic Skincare at www.hypnoticskincare.com. Check it out. Hey everybody, I am back again. Yes, um, in this episode we are going to talk about how Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X met. You know, we are in a celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. It's a special holiday, but we want to learn more and more and more about his ideologies 
But what would be a Martin Luther King Jr. birthday without Malcolm X? A man that has totally influenced Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as far as his ideologies and becoming more stronger and stronger and stronger and changing his approach. He was very instrumental, believe it or not, in the change of methodology after the I Have a Dream speech. Now, if they wouldn't have met, then I strongly feel that his ideologies will probably stay the same. And who knows how significant the movement would be. So um, I want to I read some of these um, articles here. Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. met for the first and only time over in Washington, D.C. This was a little less than a year that Malcolm X was assassinated. They were both born around the mid to late 1920s. And their fathers were very active preachers, but they were freedom fighters. All right. Now, Dr. King, he um, grew up in a middle-class family where his father was an active preacher. But he had more privileges and had a little bit more opportunities. Where Malcolm, he experienced a lot more in poverty, violence, discrimination when he was very young. Now, um, something that I never really knew that his father worships Marcus Garvey. And Marcus Garvey actually influenced the rise of Malcolm X. So Malcolm X followed the teachings of the one Marcus Garvey. All right. Now, his father was killed when Malcolm X was very young at the hands of what he believed to be white supremacists. All right. And it affected himself, his mother, his mother had to be in a mental institution. And Malcolm, when he was young, he turned into a life of being a criminal. All right. He was um, arrested at the age of 21 for um, pop, was it pocket? picketing or whatever they call it, stealing a lot of criminal activity. But while he was in prison, he met 
one of the uh, members of the Nation of Islam. You know, and from that point forward, Malcolm X decided, hey, look, I want to question what's inside the Bible. I want to question what's inside these scriptures. And that's, and that's when the birth of Malcolm X came to be. And he became um, soon after prison. Quietly, slowly, but maturely became the most prominent member of the Nation of Islam under the tutelage of one Elijah Muhammad. All right. Now, I want you guys to know, before they met, Malcolm and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. were very critical of each other. Malcolm X has looked at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as an Uncle Tom, a sellout, criticized him for using the nonviolent tactics to use against the um, officers, the white political leaders, so forth and so forth. It, it really angered Malcolm. While Dr. King criticized Malcolm X for his approach, saying that his tactics are not effective for change claiming that he is trying to incite more violence that could affect black America. So there were differences of opinions there. Um, Malcolm was highly critical of King's nonviolent approach, believing King's actions to be too slow moving and too accommodating to white Americans. And he said he was a 20th century Uncle Tom, like I was saying. So Malcolm was more of a militant who believes in the black liberation. Now his famous quote, I'm saying his famous quote is saying, by any means necessary. Now, I've, I've listened to his speech last night and he was saying, I believe in peace. I believe in obeying the law. But if the white man ever puts his hands on you, then it's on. Then you'll be looking at a cemetery. <laughs> Malcolm X believed in the Second Amendment. Because he feel like a Second Amendment is a way to protect yourself, protect your family. And, and to protect your household. That's becoming, that's being a law abiding citizen. The Second Amendment not only protects gun owners. But it helps you protect. 
protect yourself from any home invasion. Protects you from the pop from the property that you've earned by any means necessary. He's about self-defense. And that's why a lot of people in the black community love Malcolm X. They see him more as a more as a prominent black leader than um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Alright, but when Malcolm was assassinated and killed, everybody now started to turn to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Because since they met his the black community starting to respect him more and more and more because he's starting to see the light. All right. He saw that his I have a dream speech really didn't move white America that much to his liking. They still see him as a Negro. They still see him as a three-fifths of a human. And they still, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. still feel like blacks are still being discriminated. Whites are getting more home loans, more grants, low interest rates. And he realized enough is enough. All right. He wasn't big on capitalism at first, but he realized that in order to get what we want, we have to fight and take it. That's the same approach that uh, Malcolm X had. All right. I'm reading this article here in the biography here. Despite their differences, Malcolm did make some effort to try to bring King and other civil rights leaders together. In July 1963, Malcolm invited King to join a rally in Harlem. He called for a period of racial unity to fight white oppression, <clears throat> excuse me, white oppression, writing if capitalist Kennedy and communist Khrushchev can find something in common on which to form a united front despite their tremendous ideological differences. It is a disgrace for Negro leaders not to be able to submerge our minor differences in order to seek a common solution to a common problem posed by a common enemy. King never responded to that invitation and neither he nor other more moderate civil rights leaders attended the meeting. So their beef intensified. You know, when Dr. King was marching in Washington and there was a bombing of a Birmingham, Alabama church, Malcolm was very highly critical. That's right. But what strangely got them together was really when Malcolm X discovered what 
the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was doing, where he impregnated a lot of young females, his secretaries. And I think he gave him hush money to keep it quiet. They told Malcolm what was happening. And he thought it was morally wrong and questioned the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And publicly, he decided to end his relationship with the Nation of Islam, though he was still a Muslim. All right. He was still a Muslim. And even before then, um, Elijah Muhammad criticized Malcolm X for um, going after JFK because of political reasons, because the Negroes was so in tune with the Democratic Party. Because you remember when he said, Malcolm X said, well, the chickens came home to roost. That was when, it was a little bit after um, JFK was assassinated back in uh, 1963 over in Dallas, Texas. That's right. And he made a few other comments and was interest, it was interesting enough is once he publicly broken up with the Nation of Islam, he tried to bring um, Muhammad Ali along and Muhammad Ali turned his back on Malcolm X. He said he wanted nothing to do with him, would not talk to him or nothing. If he um, dishonored the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, let me remind you that when Muhammad Ali decided not to align himself with Malcolm X, strangely enough, Muhammad Ali was getting a lot of corporate endorsements if people didn't realize, okay? He was getting endorse, endorsements from Wheaties, cola drinks, and a few other things. Corporately, Muhammad Ali was making millions. In fact, I remember when um, there was a documentary where Joe Frazier gave Muhammad Ali a million dollars to live off of. But then he turned around when they were about to fight. He turned around and was calling Joe Frazier all kinds of names. He was using the black community to go up to actually turn on Joe Frazier. 
Joe Frazier financially and endorsement wise was hit hard ever since the Muhammad Ali saga. So as much as I respect Muhammad Ali and his accomplishments, I felt that he turned his back on the black brothers who tried to encourage and uplift them. So I, I thought I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, when I was reading an article, the FBI has labeled Malcolm X as schizophrenic with a mental disorder because he had plans on um, overtaking the government or overthrowing it. See, when you are mentally awoken, when you know what's really going on, when you do deep, deep, deep research that, that really goes against the mainstream society, the mainstream society will look at you as a person with mental health issues. Okay, it's a difference between being diagnosed with schizophrenia by your actual care doctor than when a doctor or a so-called expert would say, hey, look, this person has schizophrenia. There's a difference. And Malcolm, his mental health was strong. He was a strong-willed man with a strong heart. He was a strong person. Now, Dr. King, he did. He did suffer from depression. He did suffer from suicidal ideation many times. But he actually hid it from people. Because he knows that the fight that this country is going through is bigger and his personal issues with depression. So really, he developed that Mamba mentality before Kobe Bryant was ever born. That's right. But when the nation, when he broke up with the nation, that's when, okay, Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., would soon meet. See, King and Malcolm were both on Capitol Hill watching a Senate hearing regarding legislation aimed at ending segregation in public places and racial discrimination in employment. Now, the bill has been proposed by President John F. Kennedy following intense lobbying by King and others and was being shepherded through Congress by President Lyndon Baines Johnson, despite harsh opposition by many Southern elected officials. I want to read this article here on the biography. As King was wrapping up a press conference, he was approached by Malcolm, and the two shook hands and exchanged greetings. 
As cameras clicked away, Malcolm expressed his desire to become more active, saying, I'm throwing myself into the heart of the civil rights struggle. Then just as quickly as it began, the brief meeting between the two legends was over. Four days later, opponents launched one of the longest filibusters in United States history to defeat the legislation, but eventually passed and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was signed into law. But there were also rumors that they have met and talked privately that said they would like to form some kind of union with him and his uh, people to fight against the oppressors here in America, the lawmakers who still try to racially discriminate blacks financially and in the job market. But Malcolm also was a, a proponent of having their own jobs. He was in favor of black entrepreneurship. He wanted blacks to become more and more entrepreneur-like. He wanted blacks to have more and more interest in leaving the workforce and building your own. Because when you build your own, you are basically in due time and when you get more clients more sales or whatever you are more and more likely to be economically free there's more hours more work more stress more headaches but the benefits of running your own entrepreneurship is priceless is something that is so rewarding that it, it, it could be it's so rewarding that the hard work, blood, sweat, and tears is all worth it. The rewards are greater than working a regular job. Because in that point, you don't have to really worry about being unemployed. Now, you can read and write all you want to. I do think that's important. I thought about what Dr. Roy from Hampton University said. He said that if you can read and write, You'll have a job. And at first, I thought it was spot on. That's Dr. Gerald Roy. Now, he was spot on at one point. But now that I think about it, if you, I I have to, I don't want to say I disagree, even though I think he can be a narcissist at times when he was my professor. Yeah, I said it. And a few other people, especially the guy in the, um, who works in the business department was a narcissist. Smart, but a narcissist. I keep it 100. 
wasted all that damn money for that school. But now that I think about it, if you do not have your own business, if you do not have your own business marketing plan, your own business, I don't care how good you read and write, you're going to, you're going to, at some point, you're going to be unemployed because you don't have your own shit. If you don't have your own brand, you're more likely to be unemployed. You'll still be employed, but down the road, your employer is going to have some kind of financial hit to where they're going to start laying off people. They've laid off people who can read and write better than anybody in this world. Hell, better than the creator itself. They'll still be unemployed because they're not economically free. They're not free as a people. All right. So I want to go to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was becoming more and more frustrated that his marches were not being effective for him. And that the whites were still discriminative towards him. So he said, enough is enough. The marching ain't going to do shit for us. So he took a more radical approach the last five years of his life. That's what people don't want to talk about. He wanted blacks to fight and take back their finances. Fight for their jobs, but most importantly, boycott these mainstream businesses for discriminating you against your race. Okay? And J. Edgar Hoover has declared that since he made those statements, that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is the most dangerous man in the world. He said that too about Malcolm X. All right. And because Malcolm X exposed the nation of Islam, it also exposed Louis Farrakhan, Dr. John Henry Clark, the great Dr. John Henry Clark exposed Louis Farrakhan, and Muhammad Ali exposed himself. I love Muhammad Ali. I respect the things that he did. I'm telling you, since 
Malcolm X was assassinated. I felt like Muhammad Ali stopped becoming a freedom fighter. And he used he used it for financial gain. Alright. I love Muhammad Ali. It hurts. It really hurts me to talk about it. But I'm on Team Malcolm. And I'm on Team Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm on their team. Okay. And I have to call it like I see it. But I still got love for you. Muhammad Ali, rest in peace, brother. Because you've done a lot of good things, too. Like when you went to Kenya. And spoke to a lot of young black people there. And he said, you people over here have something that we in black America don't have. It's that the love and pride of your culture, which is so true. I thought, I thought he changed a little bit. I thought he changed. And this is not this is not a knock on his kids either, but they don't they don't carry the how can I put it they're not freedom fighters. Okay, I'm not saying they're sellouts, but. They're more into entrepreneurship. They're more into money marketing, which I would be the same way too. But they're nothing, nothing like Malcolm or other freedom fighters. Nothing like them at all. But this isn't to throw shade at the Ali family. It's all love. If you guys felt that I've offended you or made you upset, we can talk about it. Unfortunately, Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965 by um, a jealous member of the nation all right there are some jealous people in the nation they want to silence him once and for all And the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
was extremely heartbreaking. Where a doctor suffocated him. So I want to, I want to let you know that I want to say that those two, they're going to be missed. They're going to be remembered as great people, as great leaders, and we love you. We really do. I am a little emotional about it because they were great influencers for the world to see. Thank you for everything, gentlemen. Muhammad Ali, I want to thank you for being a great freedom fighter too. still got love for you. I really do. Okay. Till next time, everybody. I want to thank all of you for listening. Thank all of you for attending. You could have done anything. But you decided to show some love and listen. So thank you for everything, everyone. Thank you. Till next time, y'all be blessed. Her books will make you laugh. Her books will make you cry. But her books will make you think Come support children's books, author, and award-winning author, Michelle Knight, one of the best authors in the country and future bestseller. Come and support one of the hottest entrepreneurs, the hottest producer, writer, pianist, musician in Chicago, Illinois. Give it up one time for Kush Nubit, Behind the Veal label. That's right, Behind the Veal Productions for spiritual, eclectic music. Rise. That's right, Kush Nubit, the greatest independent musician ever let's show some love and support
Do you value your life? Does your life mean a lot to you? Tired of distress. Tired of trying to find which way is up or what direction you need to go. Then come check out one of the best coaches in the world. Hell in Los Angeles, California, Coach Monique Moore. That's right. Coach Monique Moore has a masterclass in how to improve your life, how to get better results, and how to self-improve. So please check out Life Coach Monique Moore, who is in Los Angeles, California, and check her out on Instagram. TikTok, and so much more. You want a smooth and healthier skin with all kinds of flavors? Do you want to feel good like a billion dollars? Then come check out one of the hottest skincare products in the world. That's right. The billion dollar industry presents hypnotic skincare, one of the hottest selling skincares in the world. So check out all kinds of flavors, all kinds of men's and women's scrubs from head to toe. That's right. Check out hypnotic skincare at www.hypnoticskincare.com Check it out.
is the serpent. The time is near when the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Nat began to prepare. At first confiding only in those closest to him. Then, in 1831, a solar eclipse appeared in the sky like a black fist blotting out the sun. They planned the uprising for July 4th, Independence Day. But illness befell Nat, and the insurrection was called off. That was until August of the same year, when another solar eclipse occurred and the air turned a ghastly grayish blue. This was the sign Nat was waiting for. The rebellion began a week later. It started the night of August 21st. The small band of slaves killed Nat's owner, Joseph Travis, his wife and son, as well as a hired worker, in their beds while they slept. After the group left, they recalled that there was one more member of the Travis family. So two slaves returned to kill the infant in its cradle. Nat felt that this violence was necessary to finally bring about the change needed to awaken abolitionist allies and shake the foundation of slavery to pieces. To Nat, this wasn't about anger. It was holy retribution. Over the next two days, the rebellion brought Old Testament carnage to the Southampton countryside, killing more than 60 whites in their path. Hundreds of federal troops and thousands of white militiamen intercepted the rebellion on its way to the center of the county's government, a town named Jerusalem. Nat managed to escape, hiding himself in the woods for over two months until he was found. Once captured, he was quickly tried, convicted, and hanged. His body was desecrated, flayed, and decapitated with his headless remains buried in an unmarked grave. Thirty other slaves and one free black man would also be convicted, nineteen of them being hanged and the others sold to places far away. But this punishment paled in comparison to those African-Americans that were murdered by paranoid, vengeful whites. Upwards of 200 blacks were killed by mobs during and following the rebellion. In the aftermath, some whites, including Thomas Jefferson Randolph, grandson to the third president, called for gradual emancipation to remove slavery. Instead, what followed in Virginia were even harsher codes for blacks. No jury trials for African Americans. Free blacks found guilty of crimes could be sold into slavery. And it was now illegal to teach any black to read. Many other southern states followed suit. Nat Turner's rebellion was a product of over two centuries of oppression in Virginia. While the concentrated horror committed by those in the insurrection cannot be denied, the horrors inflicted upon them and their ancestors must be remembered to begin to understand the event. It was a violent, abominable response to a violent, abominable system, and it proved the age-old truth. Evil begets evil.
news history. Nat Turner's going to get you. We're going to dial the clock back to August 21st, 1831, and travel to Southampton County, Virginia, and witness the largest slave revolt in U.S. history. Let's take a look at the conditions that led to it, what was going on in Nat Turner's head, and what are going to be the dire consequences following his execution. So here we go, guys. Why don't we go giddy up the learning? That was some interesting things there. Um, that was from Mr. Betts class on YouTube. Yes, talks about Nat Turner's rebellion. How Nat Turner sacrificed himself to wake the slaves up so they could be free men were willing to sacrifice their life to get away from slavery so they don't want to be slaves no more those are the real heroes now the people during those times that wanted be a slave that you know didn't want to fight back that they were so content with slavery I have no respect for them that's not inspiration that's plain weakness people were saying well they had no choice because they had a gun to their head they had a shotgun to their back our master's gonna hang them, cut them, get them open. Sometimes, the, sometimes it's best to, you know, risk your life for something that you believe in, than enduring the pain and traumatization of being enslaved. Death is better living through long years of torment during slavery. That's right. I'm going to read this here to you. It is in the Gilder Lerman Institute of American History. On the Nat Turner's Rebellion in August 22nd, 1831, a slave by the name of Nat Turner led more than 50 followers in a bloody revolt in Southampton, Virginia, killing nearly 60 white people, mostly women and children. The local authorities stopped the uprising by dawn the next day. They captured or killed most of the insurgents, although Turner himself managed to avoid capture for 60 days. Even though Turner and his followers had been, excuse me, even though Turner and his followers had been stopped, panic spread across the region. In the days following the attack, 3,000 soldiers, militia men, and vigilantes killed more than 100 suspected rebels. In a letter written a month later from North Carolina, Nelson Allen described the retaliation against African Americans. 
Nelson Allen to Joseph Allen, September 25, 1831. The insurrection of the blacks have made great disturbance here. Every man is armed with a gun by his head, by his bed, nights and in the field at work. A great many of the blacks have been shot their heads, taken off, stuck on poles at the forks of roads. Some been hung, some awaiting their trial in several counties. Six in this county. I expect to see them stretch their trial next week. There is no danger of their rising again here. So as they say, it's the fear of a black planet or is it the fear of a free black man? 19 of the 30 who had been arrested were convicted and executed, hung. The rest, along with 300 free blacks from South Hampton County, agreed to be exiled to Liberia in Africa. Turner was hanged on November 11, 1831. Nat Turner's rebellion led to the passage of a series of new laws. The Virginia legislature actually debated ending slavery, led by Thomas Jefferson, but chose instead to impose additional restrictions and harsher penalties on the activities of both enslaved and free African Americans. Other slave states followed suit, restricting the rights of free and enslaved blacks to gather in groups, travel, preach, and learn to read and write. So basically, they want you to be illiterate. It's illegal for blacks to be intelligent. All right. That's why I say reading is fundamental. Because reading can unlock some of the unsolved mysteries that has been plaguing us for so many years. And I respect that turn. Everybody's saying or giving props to Abraham Lincoln for freeing the slaves. People are giving props or looking at slaves, black slaves, as being victims. But we need to give flowers to Nat Turner and the men who fought who fought against slavery and was willing to risk their lives. That fighting spirit that fighting spirit is an inspiration is a major major inspiration and one that and one that I respect and I dearly love I love that that's right I wanted to read you guys this article here you know I want you to read it me, I want you to listen to it. Yes, you're, you're gonna listen to it, all right. 
Hold on one second, everybody. Hold on. Here we go. The District of Columbia Emancipation Act. All right, this is going to be on the National Archives that I'm reading off of. Some of you guys think that Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. He was a hero. He was the greatest president to ever live. Listen to this. And see if y'all still think of him as the hero now. On April 16th, 1862, President Abraham Lincoln signed a bill ending slavery in the District of Columbia. Passage of this law came eight and a half months before President Lincoln issued his Emancipation Proclamation. The act brought to a conclusion decades of agitation aimed at ending what anti-slavery advocates call the national shame of slavery in the nationals or the nation's capital. It provided for immediate emancipation compensation to former slave owners who were loyal to the union of up to $300 for each pre-slave voluntarily colonization of former slaves to locations outside of the United States and payments of up to $100 for each person choosing immigration. Over the next nine months, the Board of Commissioners appointed to administer the act approved 930 petitions completely or in part from former owners for the freedom of nearly 3,000 former slaves. Although its combination of emancipation compensation to owners and colonization did not serve as a model for the future, the District of Columbia Emancipation Act was an early signal of slavery's death. But I want you to, let me read this to you. Abraham Lincoln gave reparation to slave owners for up to $300 per lost slave. Okay, let me let me do a little math here. All right. 300 let's save let's save that slave owner owned 21 slaves. Right? He owns 21 slaves and um is $300 per slave. All right. Let me get this. Let me, let me get this here. 300 times 21. That 
slave owner will have $6,300. They would make a killing. A real killing. They could, during those days, that's like a millionaire status. They make a killing off of our backs. And y'all claim that Abraham Lincoln was a good president. A lot of slave owners made up to close to $10,000 per lost slave. $10,000. They can live the rest of their lives comfortably retired. That's the sick part. And y'all still think Abraham Lincoln was your hero. And you forgot about Nat Turner. Nat Turner fought by any means necessary. A lot of you know a lot of you whites or other cultures are going to think I'm racist no bum just spitting facts that's all got the sources right here he was willing to risk his life so that he doesn't have to be a slave he fought and fought and fought that's what real heroes do. For a black man, that's a fighting spirit. That's right. Was it turn the other cheek? It's about fighting for your right and fighting for other people's rights as well. talk about Nat Turner, you talk about the Black Seminoles. Those are the people that you would love to have as your ancestors. Not those who were willing participants of being enslaved, not fighting back. That will be embarrassing. right but this is the series of we are inspirational kings part two so I'm going to give you my final take be a little off topic is something that I've dealt with is dealing with the workforce so sit back relax and I shall return to give you this wonderful take. Much love to Nat Turner. Rest in peace.